Hello, I'm David Moskrop. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. On Tuesday, November 3rd, Americans will head to the polls in the country's 59th election. After four years in power, Donald Trump's presidency is on the ballot and on the ropes. Things are not looking good for the incumbent. But will the U.S. election be free and fair? For years, Trump has been working to undermine the integrity of American electoral institutions. He has refused to say whether he'll recognize the results of the vote. He has attacked the Postal Service and postal balloting. He has made unfounded and incorrect claims of voter fraud. When stacked alongside gerrymandering and long waits to vote, there are more than a few reasons for concern. My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Adam Gopnik, staff writer with The New Yorker and author of A Thousand Small Sanities, The Moral Adventure of Liberalism. The United States is no stranger to having election issues. I mean, it was, you know, just 20 years ago that the Supreme Court effectively handed George W. Bush the presidency in a 5-4 vote. Gerrymandering is nothing new. Long lines are nothing new. But but there's something different about 2020. I mean, what what's changed in the last 20 years that we look at this election and we're particularly concerned? Well, I, I'm not, David, at all an, an expert on, the, you know, the history of American polling and so on. But certainly my overwhelming sense is, is that uh, two things in particular are different. There's a broad picture in which the United States suffers from a kind of democratic deficit compared to almost every other liberal democracy, including my home country of Canada. Uh, uh, you know, Chris Rock has a funny thing about why do we hold elections on Tuesday? We don't do anything on Tuesday. <laughs> and that's symptomatic. And it's true. You know, you don't have a dance on Tuesday. You don't go out and date on Tuesday. And that's symptomatic of a broader archaic pattern of this democratic deficit. We have a, a series of gerrymandered districts. We don't have uh, voting on the weekend. We don't make it easy for people to vote. In fact, in many um, so-called red states, it's made extremely difficult for people, some people, i.e. black people, to vote at all. You have to stand in line for six to seven hours, which is effectively disenfranchising people uh, as, as it happens. So those things are, are systemic and to use a favored um, adjective of the moment, and uh, an endemic. The other thing that I think is peculiar to 2020 is that there's clearly uh, an organized plan underway, and I say this without an ounce of paranoia, to uh, uh, cloud the result of, of the election. And I think Donald Trump understands, and the people around him, understand that uh, the chances of their winning legitimately are very remote. And that was true in 2016 as well. Uh, and so Trump is a chaos principle, and his intention clearly is to create a cloud of chaos, have it descend on uh, the American election system, and then try to grab the prize in the dust and blood and uh, uh, confusion that results from that. And I think that's those two reasons, the deep underlying uh, systemic democratic deficit in American electoral politics, and then this very specific Trump chaos factor— are why people feel frightened about there actually being fair election. I mean, it's sort of stunning to me, because I remember the 2000 election, I was just sort of coming of age in my attention to politics. Mm -hmm. And then I remember, you know, 2004 and the controversy around voting machines in Ohio. And I remember a lot of pushback with people saying, oh, you're just a tinfoil hatter. Mm -hmm. But in something like 15 or 16 years, 
you know, you mentioned you're not paranoid. What what would have previously labeled you a tinfoil hatter seems perfectly plausible. Uh, absolutely. Look, the situation in 2000 was one where the most you know charitable reading you could give of was that it was a uh, uh, you know it was a tie, and there was going to be a coin toss of one kind or another, and the coin toss ended up being the Supreme Court, where Republicans had an edge. Um, the notion that there was any even a minimal pretense that it was a, a judicial rather than a partisan opinion uh, is obviously quite ridiculous. Um, so I think that was part of it. 2004, um, it was, we're still told that there were uh, irregularities, but clearly the Kerry people decided that they weren't worth pursuing. And again, there again, that election, however um, locally unjust, was clearly one that was, you know, broadly democratic. Uh, George W. got more votes than uh, than John Kerry did. Uh, 2016 was this different story, you know, where still, and this is part of that broader underlying democratic deficit, which, by the way, Pete Buttigieg, uh, who uh, I got on to early and enthusiastically, partly because I have a, uh, a class interest in short, overeducated, hyper-articulate people <laughs> doing well in the world, but Austin, he really is a remarkably um, lucid and uh, an intelligent guy. Um, that was central to Buttigieg's whole program, was curing this democratic deficit, both in terms of gerrymandering, but also in terms of the Supreme Court, which he was talking about a year ago, uh, and uh, uh, the Senate, all of those institutions, the Electoral College, that disable American democracy. Uh uh, so badly. But 2016, as I, what I was about to say is, um, Americans are inculcated with the idea that, oh, there's the popular vote, and then there's the electoral vote, the electoral mm. college, as though the popular vote is somehow a shoddy, second-rate, simulacral <laughs> vote. It's the only vote there is, in the reality, mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton won by uh, millions of votes, uh, in fact. And then we, ha we had this archaic 18th century slavery invented uh, system take the place now to be sure um you know there are always some democratic deficits in every electoral system you have as you know um liberals won in canada with fewer votes not many fewer votes but with fewer votes than the than the tories had uh, i think there's a difference though between a system that tries to balance into districts, you know, the intense concentration of conservative voting in Alberta, say, or yeah. uh, voting in Quebec once upon a time when I was a kid. Um, I, and then that's something other than a system where you have to win, if you're on one side, by five or six percentage points in order to have a shot to win it all. That is profoundly uh, anti-democratic. And, uh, you know, that is stacked against the broader efforts to undermine votes in particular areas that you referenced earlier. Um, and, and yet, I mean, you know, in 2019, in your book, A Thousand Small Sanities, which, which I recommend, uh, you wrote that the U.S. is facing a moment of extreme national emergency. And that mm -hmm. was in 2019. 19, right. We're staring into 2021. I mean, going into November, are you worried that it tips over into violence? You know, I mean, I, I'm watching Trump assembling citizens to monitor the election results. I'm watching the, the you know, the plot to kidnap uh, the governor of Michigan, Michigan play out, right? Like, I mean, I, you know, if, if I'm watching Trump's refusal to say that he'll accept the results. I mean, looking at that, is the concern now, okay, it's not just about 
you know, whether or not you can tip a few states. It's whether or not you can you can win by so many that you can forestall violence. Yes, and I think that's a really unfortunate thing. So many people are saying, well, Biden needs to win by a landslide. Think about what that implies. Yeah. If he doesn't win by so overwhelming a margin that um, Trump has no alternative except to accept it, um, that's not the way a democracy is supposed to function. And it's one more sign of how profoundly Trump has already undermined the premises of democracy in America. You know, one of the favorite right-wing arguments, you hear it from, what's his name, Ralph Stoutalked in the New York Times, or from Neil Ferguson, the, the conservative uh, historian, is to kind of poo-poo Trump's uh, toxicity and to say, oh, well, he's such an oaf and he's so boorish. And he's so inefficient that he, even if he's trying to undermine democracy, he can't succeed at doing it. But the very conversation we're having right now, David, suggests just how much he's already undermined democracy. You shouldn't have to win by a landslide in order to win an election. That shows how slanted, how tilted, how profoundly uh, uh, intimidated the entire system has already been by the presence of a would-be autocrat. So... Uh, you know, that's not a conversation you would be having if Mitt Romney, to give him credit, were on the other side. Um, mm -hmm. It will only count as a victory if you win so big that I can't pretend anything else happened. Uh, or Richard Nixon, for that matter. You know, Richard Nixon was the pet noir of American liberals, historically. But when Richard Nixon lost a very close and disputed election to John Kennedy in 1960, he accepted the result. He accepted it somewhat uh, glumly. But uh, but he accepted it. Now, there's an argument that there was skullduggery in that election in Illinois on Kennedy's behalf, but there was also skullduggery other places on Nixon's behalf. It was an, an earlier period. Nonetheless, uh, a commitment to the institutions of constitutionalism is essential to democracy functioning at all, American democracy. And it's quite clear that that, uh, that commitment is totally sundered now on the Republican side. I mean, it's it's interesting that you mentioned the, the argument advanced by some on the right that oh, Trump's just a incompetent bore. I mean, so is Mussolini. I mean, it doesn't stop you from from being yes. And you know, you, problem, you know, right? you're not supposed to use this name at all, and partly for good reasons and partly for bad ones. But you know, Hitler was not a terribly efficient governor. You know, Hitler slept through most of the day and showed up late. Uh, you know, there there is no association between. Uh, that, that's a myth of the efficient autocrat, but there is no association between efficiency and skill and authoritarian politics, very much the opposite. Authoritarianism is the, uh, uh, the politics of the easy. So I think that that's, you know, that's, uh, that's one of the scary things that Trump has done. I'm generally indignant at that whole absurd argument that Trump is somehow harmless because he's an idiot. Uh, he's already done enormous harm. Uh, and in some respects, irreparable harm, because we will never get back to the assumption that um, uh, elections are decided by arguments among the persuadable, however much that that served as a necessary fiction in the platonic sense. Nonetheless, <laughs> it, was an, it was an important one, uh, and it clearly is no longer uh, alive, and I don't know that it can be brought back alive. We are on the brink, David. I mean, you can write a positive scenario, that is that uh, Biden or Trump win by uh, conventional measures and undeniably so and the rest of it. I think it's far likelier that there will be, as I said a moment ago, enormous chaos 
in the week of the election and that Trump will declare himself the victor in the, the smoke and confusion of that chaos. And that he will, uh, you know, have a vigilante army of a kind. You know, the whole notion of citizen poll watchers is in itself absurd. There are no citizen poll watchers. It's illegal mm -hmm. to watch other people vote with the intention of intimidating them. And obviously, armed poll watchers are vigilantes, are terrorists uh, of, of another kind. So the very way in which uh, Trump pushes the outer edge of the acceptable and the degree to which the media and other people are effectively intimidated by. They're not effectively intimidated by David in the sense that the New York Times says, oh, well, I guess that's acceptable. It's that uh, each uh, uh, dissolution of normalcy becomes accepted. Oh, well, that's just Trump. You know, oh, that's just Trump saying, well, we'll send out the, the vigilantes uh, to watch it. And each time you accept that, you know, there's a thing you see it in the New York Times all the time. Um, uh, uh, something Trump does, right, is not normal. For instance, it's um, telling his attorney general to start a criminal investigation of his political rivals, Obama or Biden. Um, that's not normal. It's a lot worse than not normal. Of course it's not normal. It's criminal. Uh, uh, the president can't take control of the Justice Department in order to pursue his own personal vendettas. Uh, but we've only made it, oh, that's not normal to have happen. So one of the ways in which uh, tyrants and would-be tyrants work uh, is exactly by um, shaving down the uh, our accepted barriers. Um, and bit by bit, we come to uh, we come to take them on. We come to to feel that they're uh, one part of the acceptable. Because to say the opposite, uh, that they're completely unacceptable, that they they are truly criminal, would mean. Uh, as you know, as press people, it would mean uh, escaping from the the pretense of objectivity. And you can see that the New York Times, for instance, is is crucified uh, on this problem because they want to treat Trump as normal. There's nothing normal about Trump, and they end up treating, and they end up normalizing his abnormality. I mean, you saw this in the in the debate. I mean, this you know we're recording this in the aftermath of the of the second presidential debate, right. and Trump. You know, through what must have been a, an extraordinary feat of of self control or or substances, it was able to restrain himself to some degree and look, you know, quasi normal, and that earned him a lot of praise among the punditocracy, yeah, which shows you just how low we've gone. Yes, exactly. He instead of behaving like a clearly deranged human being, he merely lied and lied, ranted, and made bizarre and obviously false accusations for an hour. His behavior being merely that of a demagogue instead of that of a deranged demagogue shows that he was presidential. Exactly. That's what I mean exactly by constantly renegotiating the line of acceptability. I mean, to, to go back to this point uh, that, that people are you know, saying that the Democrats have to win by a considerable margin to make it count. You know, say they, they, they win by 8 or 12 points in the popular vote or 60 or 80 electoral college votes. I mean, is that enough for for mainstream Republicans to abandon Trump and say, okay, it's time to go. Even if Trump says, you know what, I'm going to push this to the courts wherever it has to go, even if it's 10 points or 60 electoral college votes. You know, I'm not a professional political uh, guy and I don't know the inner workings of the Republican party uh, that well. I do think it is still shocking to see how, I, no, let me revise that. I don't think it's shocking. It's totally predictable, but even though totally predictable, it is still shocking. 
to see how quickly the Republican Party uh, collapsed and became uh, a Trump cult. That was something that, I, if I may say, I predicted four years ago, because anybody who's a student of the history of authoritarian movements, fascism, properly so-called, know that uh, respectable uh, conservatives always collapse quickly because uh, for two reasons. One, because uh, the, um, the kind of emotional hysteria that gets generated amongst their supporters by the charismatic authoritarian figure uh, intimidates them. And the other reason is, and, you know, Anne Applebaum, the, the fine historian of uh, left totalitarianism, wrote a very good piece. It was in the Atlantic, I'm afraid, rather than in the New Yorker. But nonetheless, <laughs> a very good piece not long ago about the, uh, the, the logic and psychology of collaboration with, with Trump's conservative supporters very much in mind. And she looked at, uh, you know, uh, communist collaboration in East Germany and at I don't remember if she actually looked at uh, collaborators in uh, occupied France, but that's a subject I know something about, and one that people have used occasionally, talking about Vichy cons. And there, again, inevitably, what always happens is that it's not that you suddenly get a conversion experience where you decide to embrace Mussolini, Stalin, Hitler, or Trump. On the contrary, what always happens is you say, oh, I don't like that guy. I am not pro-German if I'm French in 1940. But the other side is so dangerous and so evil. The Bolsheviks and the Jews are so likely to destroy the very essence of France that I have no choice but to side with people who I know are in some ways unpalatable. I don't uh, disagree about that. But the, the other side is so much worse. You build up this hugely inflated boogeyman of um, the people you fear and hate in order to justify your adherence to the autocrat you know is um, uh, uh, wrong, you know is evil. And that, I think, is exactly the same uh, logic and psychology that we're seeing amongst uh, Republicans. Uh, to answer your question, this is a long prefatory note, but it actually leads to the logic of the answer. I don't know that you can recover from that very easily. You know, once you've, you, the, the devil, once you've sold your soul to him, doesn't have a return policy. Mm -hmm. uh, it's gone, and you are uh, you are the victim of it. And I fear that whatever the result of the election is, that won't suddenly result, as I suspect Joe Biden uh, uh, imagines. It it won't result in a sudden, you know, like at the end of the uh, the uh, the the parable of the prodigal son in the Bible. I will arise and go back to my father's house. I will mm -hmm. return to the politics of George Bush Senior and Mitt Romney. Uh, Instead, I suspect that it will just drive them further down that same road, and the uh, the it may take another face, but the um, the essentially hysterical and authoritarian politics will continue. Well, you anticipated my next question, which was going to be: I mean, what do the Democrats do to try to restore something like normalcy? I mean, I I think part of the problem is that the the seeds of this discontent have been sown a long time ago, right? Insofar as the the growth of toxic identitarian partisanship or go way back. I mean, you know, it seems to me that it was just waiting for someone to come along and reap that. And I don't know how you how you reset if if the sort of toxic polarization is so deeply inset into the population. I mean, is there anything the Democrats can do if they win to try to roll that back? Or do they have to play by the same rules as the Republican and then you get a race to the bottom? Well, if you let me try and give you an optimistic view and then give you a realistic view. <laughs> Fair. I'll give, you 
I'll give you the optimistic view first. The optimistic view is to say, look, it was not that long ago, it was a mere four years ago, that Barack Obama was president of the United States. Now, we can criticize Obama in lots of ways, and he there's a, uh, a case to be made that the experience of Obama in power was one more of disappointment and disillusion for many people and so on. But however one criticizes Obama on the particulars or on the atmospherics, Obama was a model liberal democratic leader. He was elected beyond all question by a popular popular mandate, which was then renewed. He occupied his office not only with enormous dignity, but with a, a clear sense of uh, 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 what's the right word of of statesmanship. Uh, never uh, to, to a fault, never vilified the other side. Wouldn't even tell the world that uh, the Russians were working on Trump's behalf for fear that it would seem, if he didn't have bipartisan support, for fear that it would seem uh, too partisan. It, he was, an, in every respect, a utterly normal uh, leader in a liberal democratic country. Um, and that was a mere four years ago. And Trumpism was a kind of black mass, reversed mirror uh, uh, parody of that. But it didn't have to happen that way. You know, if Obama could have run for a third term, he would have won a third term. He didn't have Hillary Clinton's deficits. This is all by way of saying that uh, there's nothing uh, inexorable nothing faded, nothing written about the history of a country. The same country that supported Barack Obama for eight years has not supported, but certainly has been sufficiently subject, has been subject to Donald Trump and certainly a large part of the population has supported Trump in that same time. So there's no reason to think that it can't swing around again. There's nothing, uh, there's no plot in history that has to go or end one way or another. So that's the optimistic view that it it snaps back, uh, having uh, having snapped in two different directions. The realistic view of it, I I I fear, is that um, that you can't go back after you've been here. That once the the you know people talk a lot about a lot about norms, and I've always been unhappy when people talk about norms, the norms of democracy, the Trumps breaks, because that would be his self-description. It makes the norms sound as though they're ornamental curlicues on the surface of things, mm-hmm. and Trump has the the character, the the originality to to break through them. You know, the image I always use for that, I think, misleadingly benign view of Trump is uh, Rodney Dangerfield in, in uh, Caddyshack. Do you remember that old <laughs> oh, yeah. comedy from the 80s? And Rodney Dangerfield is brash and coarse but he's sort of uh, he, he's he's sort of admirable because he's he's farting all over the pieties of the what was in the Ted Knight character, right? Of all those stuffy waspy guys, and there's and that's the way people who excuse Trump excuse him. Uh, but these are not the norms of a golf club that Trump is violating. They're we only call them the norms because they're the unspoken premises of a liberal democracy. And they're not spelled out. They're normative in that sense, rather than being official, exactly because no one ever thought that anyone would question them. It's like saying, I, I'll have to see the result before I accept it. That's not a norm in a democracy. That's a premise of a democracy that nobody insists on because nobody can imagine anything other. Uh, the same thing is true about saying, uh, my opponent is criminal. I wish my what's wrong with my attorney general that he doesn't investigate. That, again, that's not a norm that the president doesn't demand criminal investigations of his opponents. It's a premise. You can't have a liberal democracy 
if that were going on. That's definitive. That's definitional of an autocracy, of uh, uh, Idi Amin's regime. So you don't spell it out, not because it's merely normative, it's merely cosmetic, but because it's so foundational that nobody ever thought to spell it out because you wouldn't even imagine uh, that the system could survive if someone were violating that premise. Uh, and that, I think, once those, once you take an axe to those foundations, it's very hard to rebuild the house. Are journalists playing into Trump's hands when they ask him about this? You know, I was thinking about this during the vice presidential debate, and the moderator asked Mike Pence whether or not Trump would respect the results, and he wouldn't really say, he sort of danced around the question. But I saw lots of pushback, people saying that, don't even ask that question. You know, it shouldn't even be asked. But I, I'm, I'm a little torn on that as to whether or not it should be put to the president or the vice president in the first place. Do you think it's playing into their hands, Stephen? Sure. Well, no, it's part of a broader syndrome, which I was talking about before, which you see in now, I, you know, I, for me to call it the mainstream media, I guess this is a bit hypocritical. <laughs> I'm, the, I'm on the, uh, the, the outer, uh, genuinely liberal edge of uh, the mainstream media. Y yes, I think that it is exactly. Uh, uh, part of the syndrome we've been describing, or I've been attempting to describe. Um, when you ask that question, it means there are two possible answers to it, right? You say, will you accept the results? Question mark. It means you can say no, right? Um, it's like if I ask one of my kids, are you going to be home by midnight? Uh, don't think so is one of the, the results <laughs> that you're thereby legitimizing, right? So in that sense, I think it's the the trick is that the conventions, if you like, the norms of journalism insist on two-sidedness, right? So if you say to, some, to a politician, will you accept the results of the election? And the politician says, um, I'll have to see what the result is. The right answer is, is, are you out of your mind? Do you realize that what you just said is a criminal assault on the premises of our democracy? But a journalist won't say that, right? Because that's not within the acceptable lexicon of things journalists say. You know, the headline on pretty much every issue of The New York Times for the past four years should be Trump lies again, but they can't say that. So it, as a consequence, the liar has an enormous advantage on the um, on the anyone who's who's honest. I mean, we see the same asymmetry with, um, uh, you know, Biden and any one of 20 scandals that uh, the Donald Trump has engaged in would have been career ending, would have been mm -hmm. presidency ending if any other president had taken part in it. If uh, Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton's lawyer, had paid $100,000 in hush money to a porn star uh, and then gone to jail for it, uh, although Clinton had authorized the payment, Bill Clinton would not have survived for three days. Not just the Republicans, but the New York Times and the Democratic Party would have been demanding his resignation and they would have gotten it. We don't even remember that scandal anymore. Mm -hmm. That's gone. That's, you know, that was two years ago. Uh, so in that way, uh, the offender, and this is a classic pattern. You know, if you read um, uh, uh, Tim Snyder's very good book about tyranny or Steve Greenblatt's book about the portrait of the tyrant in Shakespeare, that's always the way that autocrats and tyrants um, insinuate themselves into power. They, do so much more than anyone can imagine that you end up responding to, as I said before, to the outer edge of their criminality. You know, the best portrait of that I know is in Shakespeare's uh, Richard III, right? Nobody can quite believe that Richard is doing the things that he's doing. 
and everyone in sequence says, well, I, I, I can control him. I have a relationship with Richard. And then he kills the next person. Uh, <laughs> that's what the, that's, you know, what, what actually goes on. So this is a long winded way of saying that I think that, uh, all of the conventions of the objective uh, media are totally vulnerable to the manipulations of a shameless liar. I mean, you know, the or maybe I can put it another way: not just a shameless liar of a of a genuine sociopath, someone who has no shame about lying, but also no capacity for compunction or compunction about uh, his own cruelty which is Richard III, and is also some part of Trump. It's, you know, it's become such a cliche to, to call something Orwellian, but it strikes me that in this sense, you know, telling the truth is becoming increasingly difficult. And that does seem to be one of the, the lessons from Orwell, is that you've got to protect your capacity to tell the truth. And you, you see this with the sort of euphemisms for lying, or the sort of workarounds that the press uses, you know, falsehood has become the standard, right? So they, they don't dare imply that it was deliberate. Right, controversial statement. Right, uh, uh, the, 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 you're quite right. There's a there's a host of them. Um, now, you know, here's where I where I would would differ with Orwell. Though I, you know, I did a debate before the pandemic started in London, actually, uh, between uh, where I was uh, insisting that Orwell's 1984 was more prescient than Huxley's Brave New World, an opinion I would not have hold, held at all. Uh, 10 years ago when it seemed that uh, Huxley's vision, if you remember it, of a kind of narcotic empire of entertainments uh, had much more relevance to the world we were living in <laughs> of, uh, you know, uh, totalitarian control. The one place where I think Orwell was too pessimistic is he assumed that people would not just be intimidated into falsehoods, but they would actually feel the falsehoods in their soul. And that is something that I'm bound to say I don't think this happened. If there's a bright light in the midst of this very dark time. It, the one that surprises me is how many uh, non-political, if you like, untrained, not hyper-educated people have been capable of speaking out sharply. You know, um, uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, the, the swimsuit model, um, uh, Tegan. Uh, what's her first name? I'm blocking her first name. You know, uh, Chrissy. I mean. Chrissy Tegan. Yeah. Uh, sorry. Chrissy Tegan has been more shrewdly outspoken than um, Chuck Schumer about Trump and his falsehoods. I don't think any, I think many are uh, intimidated in the actual press, but I don't think many people are actually fooled. Or if you choose to be fooled, it's because you've chosen it. I mean, Teen Vogue has become... Yes, a force, right? I mean, they do better than the Times in a lot of ways. They they tell it like it is. They tell it like it is a Teen Vogue. You know, it's the people's Vogue. It's, you know, Vogue for the masses. Yeah, I think that's true. So I don't, I I worry less. I think the one place where Orwell was wrong was in attributing uh, uh, superpowers psychologically to totalitarian and authoritarian states. The one thing we did learn from the experience of Nazi Germany and of uh, the Soviet Union and Maoist China and so on, is that no one was fooled. They were frightened. You know, people were frightened, and they were frightened by the millions because of what the state could do to them. But they, as a rule, were not fooled. The X factor in this seems to be, you know, partisan identity, though, is that, you know, I mean, I think you're absolutely right, except for those sort of diehard Republicans who are just primed and motivated to believe whatever and to excuse it. 
Yeah, totally. That's true. You know, the, uh, as, again, you know, I'm not a political scientist and I'm only an amateur student of such things. Uh, but it is striking that the it's seemingly the biggest divide. I don't know if this is true in Canada, but it certainly seems to be true in the United States and in Britain. The biggest divide these days is rural and urban, right? That that's yeah. the more powerfully than uh, uh, youth and age, more powerfully than anything else. There there are two countries within one country in uh, in the United States, and one is a rural country and one is an urban country, and they have a, an almost absolute divide in the way that they uh, see the world. By the way, if I may add, David, I you know this will probably I dare say will come out afterwards. But of all the crazy things that get said that you know, go flying by before anyone has a chance to refute them. This idea that New York City has become a ghost town, that people yeah. have, <laughs> is one uh, that I am here to tell you is not just a little bit false, but is the direct reverse of the truth. I go take my bike, I bike around the length of Central Park from 110th Street to 59th Street every day, and I have never seen the park this crowded. That's partly because people aren't going to the gym, yeah. but it's 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 not because people have left New York. I just walked um, 40 blocks from uh, East 88th Street to East 70th Street, uh, further east. And if you did not know, only the masks that people were virtuously wearing would give you any clue that it wasn't a normal New York Friday. So this this, uh, this notion that's been allowed to proliferate, that New York is a ghost town. Now, New York has many uh, uh, crises to resolve going forward and questions about whether you know, the great retail institutions of New York can survive, what will happen to its restaurants, Broadway is closed. I don't mean to underestimate the crisis that the pandemic has imposed, but the resilience of the city is far more evident than its um, than its defeat. It's, it's amazing to me that the president of the United States can lie about the country's biggest city. It's something that easily checked. Yes, it's something that easily checked. And nobody says instantly or afterwards. That ain't so. That just isn't yeah. true. That just Twitter is was not. Yeah, just tw- not Twitter was busy with with New Yorkers trying to clarify the record <laughs> immediately. But but I mean that's certainly not uh, you know a perva- it, it, It's a megaphone of a sort, but doesn't reach everybody. Yeah. I I want to close out on two things. One is is looking. Uh, outward and then back inward on the country. If the election, if electoral integrity is called into a question after the vote or during the vote, is the can the world do anything or should it? You know, if this were another country, we'd be talking observers, right? But we're not in this case, really. I mean, what does the world do if this election goes pear-shaped? I actually, David, think there are observers who come in. I don't think they have any any particular effect. I think the world needs to be unified in, I mean, the democratic world needs to be unified in support of liberal democracy. We could be looking, I mean, look, I hope that what's going to happen is uh, that with all of the bluster and and talk and bravado, that the institutions of liberal democracy in the United States are sufficiently old as to remain resilient and robust, that we will have a reasonably, we will have a clear verdict on the night of the election something like a quarter of the vote is already in and presumably reflects the uh, the state of opinion as as it exists now and so on and and it will be okay but it's perfectly possible that it will not be and uh in that case i think that canadians and brits and french people and everyone else should band together in support of liberal democracy whatever that might mean obviously they can't uh it can invade as you know to for, <laughs> 
to you know anti uh, tyrannical regime change for uh, for good or ill, but you know I, I, you know I'm always torn about these things because I don't want I, I don't have illusions about the perfection of the liberal democratic order in the United States as I began this conversation by saying we suffer here from many extreme uh, democratic deficits much worse I think than in any other modernized country you know the um, and uh, so the, the protecting the order as it is is not necessarily the ultimate goal but the order as it is is better than the order is um, as Trump is trying to make it and and his supporters are so you know all you can do is root <laughs> root for the good guys and you know uh, uh, you know American politics have played a more catalytic role historically than sometimes I think people are aware um, you know we look on the Union victory in the Civil War as a, a specifically American uh, tragedy and uh, uh, passion but the the truth is and people don't tend not to be acutely aware you know the the Statue of Liberty, sits in New York Harbor, um, is something that we all associate iconically with uh, immigration, and understandably so, since it was the first thing that most immigrants saw. My own grandfather, when he was coming into um, Ellis Island, got renamed Ellis and remembered seeing the, seeing the statue. But that's not what the Statue of Liberty is about. The Statue of Liberty was envisioned in France in the wake of the end of the Civil War, as a gesture of republicanism in a France, which, if you recall, was still under this autocratic yeah. sway of Napoleon III. And the Statue of Liberty was meant to be an imaginary work of conceptual art, one would-be republic greeting another successful republic, the United States. And even things like the, um, the uh, enfranchisement uh, laws in Britain that came through in the late 1860s um, were a response to the the triumph, however limited and inequitable and the rest of it, of the liberal democratic order in the United States. So um, no man is an island and no country is alone. And, uh, you know, there was the theme of my book, if there was one, uh, Thousand Small Sanities, is, was and is that um, the liberal democratic order, with all of its frailties, faults and injustices, is still, and I say this pugnaciously but confidently, the best uh, governmental order that poor mankind has ever seen, poor humankind has ever experienced, and that for all its successes, it remains incredibly fragile. And we are in the midst of one of those moments of maximum fragility. Well, I want to close on on that question as we sort of approach time. I, you know. My critiques of liberalism stem from the point that, I mean, liberalism, as C.B. McPherson said, requires capitalism. They're sort of inextricable. And and my critiques of capitalism is such that it sort of undermines liberal democracy by, by fostering inequality. And liberalism also sort of excludes a lot of participatory institutions. But, I mean, I do think the, the sort of the framework of liberalism, the rights-based framework, is ultimately pretty encouraging, at least in its you know, ideal, idealized state. But I wonder what the decline of U.S. electoral integrity and the decline of U.S. liberalism says about the model of liberal democracy itself, both in the country and perhaps abroad. Well, let me first dispute 
your three three claims there though that would could, sure. we could, yeah, <laughs> I think one of the and it's something I try and write about in the in the book one of the realities of uh, history of the 20th century is that it turned out that the liberal democratic order was only very provisionally tied to capitalism uh, narrowly defined you recall that Hayek in the 1940s wrote that famous uh, and still famous and on on the conservative side book, The Road to Serfdom. And what he was, mm -hmm. the road to serfdom was the Labour Party coming to power in the United Kingdom, right? That that would uh, annihilate freedom. Well, the Labour Party came to power. It nationalized um, uh, coal, the railroads, uh, you know, countless industries and civil liberties and the democratic, liberal democratic order, the parliamentary order survived and flourished. That notion that the two things were inextricably linked, whether it was being the Hayekian right or by the Marxist left turn out to be false. There's enormous room for um, economic intervention, for economic models of all kinds, which leave what I think of as the essential uh, liberal democratic order, that is the decision to resolve political disputes nonviolently through persuasion and election mm -hmm. rather than through violence, it leaves it completely intact. So I dispute, first of all, that, that, that first claim. And secondly, you know, I, and this is this is again, I'm I'm raising this because it's so much part of the book I tried to write. The idea that uh, liberalism is the enemy of community, the idea that uh, liberalism only can imagine human beings as alienated, autonomous individual agents, I think, is completely false to the actual history of uh, liberalism as the great liberal thinkers uh, have imagined it. Um, the uh, an idea of of community, of complicity, but above all, of being free to make your own community, not simply being limited to the inherited communities of clan and church, is, I think, um, as much part of liberalism as the idea of uh, individual rights, vital though that is. Having made those two <laughs> provisions, <laughs> let me, you know, let me then give you the pessimistic account that, as I said, look, um, the liberal order, liberal democracy, is an incredibly fragile flower. Its roots are very deep. Um, you know, Amartya Sen has shown how, how many of the uh, fundamental values of uh, coexistence, the construction of the kind of civic capital that allows uh, social coexistence to happen, how you can find them in so many countries and cultures. But as I've said elsewhere, though, the roots are very deep, the fruits are very fragile mm -hmm. uh, and are always under assault, always under assault. And the, one of the reasons why the great heroes of liberalism, like John Stuart Mill and Harriet Taylor and uh, Albert Camus, always are marked by having enormous circles under their eyes, is because <laughs> to hold the liberal faith is to be under constant assault from both sides, from the authoritarian tendencies of the right and from the totalitarian temptations of the left. And that is a struggle that will never be resolved and it will never end. And there will be moments, as right now in the United States, where we find ourselves in a life and death struggle with the authoritarian tendencies of the right. And that may be succeeded by one in which um, liberal habits of toleration and pluralism uh, go to the mat with the, the totalitarian temptations of the left. It's, it's perfectly plausible that that will happen in turn. Um, so what I suppose I would say as a note of moderated and cautious optimism is I don't see any moment in modern history in which the things that I value about the liberal order, the things I just mentioned, the practice of tolerance, of belief in broad 
political and social pluralism, the emphasis on the ongoing liberation of human kinds and practices. I don't see a single moment when that was a kind of complacent bulwark culture that merely, you know, counted its compliments for granted. On the contrary, the history of modernity, as I see it, is a history of the uh, birth and rebirth, the articulation and renewal of the idea of an open and plural society, and its constant assault by the temptation of uh, closed and, and tribal societies. That's the history that we've lived through, and that is the history that will never end. I'm so tempted to end on that note because it's such a resounding call to to resistance. But I, I'm just sort of compelled to point out that Sartre had a lot of some serious bags under his eyes too. That's okay. Yes. <laughs> so the, the existentialist communists, I, maybe it was existentialism and not political. They put the bags under his eyes. Well, he tried to cure. He tried to mask the bags under his eyes by <laughs> by keeping his eyelids propped open and pretending that communism was the utopian. Uh, version of the future. I, I'm not being facetious. It's funny you mentioned Sartre because I just have his book, The Words, Nemo, open on my desk as we speak. And that was exactly Sartre's answer was to the perpetual crisis of modernity was to turn your eyes to the utopian communist future. It got to be impossible even for him. Yeah, that's true. And post-68 to believe in it. And why I love Camus, and maybe this is a good note to end on, is because Camus never suffered from that delusion. He recognized that um, that um, Sisyphus' struggle to push the boulder up the hill and then watch it fall back again, that was humanity's struggle, and it was never going to end. Sounds like my day on Twitter. (laughs) 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 Well, let's close on that, and with my uh, extraordinary thanks to you for joining me today. Um, and as always, to Amira Ahmad, to Luke Gilmore, and to Aaron Reynolds, who make this possible, and to everyone at home uh, who's listening and struggling and thinking uh, and, and continuing to push through this pandemic and sees hopefully uh, a brighter day ahead. So thanks once more to Adam Gopnik for joining me here today. It was a pleasure, David. Really love talking to you. Pleasure's all mine. <laughs>